This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Choice. The ability to choose requires options. Choices, sometimes the hardest ones, are between two good options. Ice cream or s'mores. Italian or Chinese. Blue cheese or ranch. But real-life choices aren't always between two good options. Sometimes people are forced to choose between two pressure points that no matter what they choose, the result will be pain, hardship, shame, loss, and failure. Trade-offs is what we casually call some of the hard stress-inducing decisions people who struggle with access to food must make on a regular basis. A trade-off, choosing between the necessities of life. The items that Abraham Maslow identified as the most rudimentary needs a human being must have secured in order to move forward to their highest and best purpose. When those basic needs are unmet, people fixate on having those needs met, like air, water, food, shelter, until they are secured. In the pursuit, people will manage great need with very few assets. Therefore, they must choose between two or more unmet needs. Does a family buy food or medicine? Do they pay the rent? are the utilities? Do they buy enough food for the kids in the house today? Or does the parent use the money to put gas in the car so they can go to work? I've made these choices in my life, and they weren't easy. They hurt, caused pain, and created a strong sense of shame that I listened to the voice in my head talk to me as I drove myself to work. The stress takes its toll on people mentally, emotionally, and physically. The kind of stress kills. It kills desire, hope, trust, and in the place comes shame, depression, and the overwhelming sense of loss. But when hunger comes off the table and is replaced by the access to healthy food, spirits soar, people rise, and doubt is diminished but not until food is on the table. Today in Michigan, too many are facing these choices, choices focused on less, trade-offs that masquerade as detours when they are really dead ends. So today we are seeing record number of people come to our network, and we've invited our good friend and colleague in this work of creating a food-secure Michigan, Lou Rubel, the Senior Deputy Director for Opportunity from the Department of Health and Human Services to share with us what they are seeing and experiencing from around the state regarding people who are seeking assistance with the hard choices that they have to make. Jerry Brisson, Lou Rural, join me next on this edition of Food First Michigan. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We're back. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in our WJR studio. Hi, Jerry. Hey, it is so good to see you. It feels like it's been a little while, but uh, 
But you know what? Here we are. Here Lots we are. Lots to celebrate. We're back. We're back in the studio. And uh, for our uh, return visit, we have a very, very special friend, guest, colleague, partner in this work. He is Lou Rubel, the Senior Chief Deputy Director for Opportunity at the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. And so, Lou, the first question is, did you get to write your own title? <laughs> hey, good day, gentlemen. So glad to be with you, as always. Um, I did not get to write that title, but I'll tell you what, uh, I, I appreciate that title every day and uh, it, what it allows us to, what it allows me to be able to do uh, during during my day job. I love it. Well, I'll tell you this, because you and I are friends and colleagues, and we do this work together um, pretty pretty intimately, and uh, I will tell the folks right now that to 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 find a senior chief deputy director for opportunity at the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, it's like when they found you, they wrote the job title because that's exactly who you are. You are always looking and seeking for opportunities to how we can serve the folks in Michigan that need us better and more. Well, Phil, I appreciate that. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say, though, that, you know, I'm, I'm one part of a pretty significant puzzle. So uh, got a great team. Uh, we're all rolling in the same direction, all understand kind of the importance and necessity of what we do. And I think uh, just being able to stay kind of mission driven um, really allows us with partners like yourself, um, the food banks around the state, just in network of community partners, uh, everybody Everybody moving energy in the right direction helps us solve complex problems. So I uh, appreciate what you both do to add solutions to um, this uh, issue that is very near and dear to us. Well, it, it also is a perfect segue into what we're wanting to talk about. Uh, you know, we, we deal with a lot of the same people in, in different ways. And, and when we talk to each other about what we're seeing out in the world and, and then start to plan around what does it mean, you know, so we, we get information and then we say, okay, first of all, we're going to meet the need. But, but after that, we got to start thinking about, well, what, what should this tell us about our work? What should this tell us about what we should do next? And, and how do we work together at that so that we're complementing each other, right? And I, and I think the first thing we want to do on the show today is say, well, what are you seeing out there? And, and we probably have a little bit to add to that. And let's just share a little bit with our listeners, you know, what's, what's happening in the world of, of human services, you bet. You bet. So, you know, there is there's a lot of data. I think that, you know, we all kind of appreciate that um, we now are, are able to see things, learn things based on data to a degree that's significantly improved from where we might have been, you know, a decade ago. Uh, so then, you know, what does the data tell us? Um, what can we learn from it? And then more importantly, what action can we take? I think there's a couple of things here when we look at food uh, insecurity, especially in Michigan right now, that's important to start with. One, um, back in February of this year, February 23, we had the last month of our emergency allotments on the food assistance program. And I'm sure you you both are very familiar with that. But for you know our listening community, um, this this was a part of the pandemic response at the federal level. So the Federal Food Nutrition Service allowed states to uh, issue more benefits per individual and per household than what is traditionally allowed. And it's like okay, so what does that mean? Well, um, it means that there was about 138 million dollars of additional benefits issued to families 
every month um, through the pandemic, that came to an end in February. And so if we look at the difference between February's issuance and March, like I said, we went from uh, $372 million being issued in food benefits to Michiganders down to 234, about $235 million being issued. So yeah, and, and lots of big numbers there, right, Jerry? But at the end of the day, it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, it means per person, there was about $100 less to purchase uh, food with, groceries with, um, when you went from the month of February to the month of March. So we were we were kind of wondering, well, what, what does that look like? How does that play out? What does it mean to food um, security rates in the state? So that was kind of where we really started to um, want to make sure we were paying attention to data. Hey, Lou, let's from grab your, one more number before we go on. So it was $372 million to $235 million. And how many uh, people is that or how many households? Either one, I think, works. But just to frame, how many people are affected? Yeah, so it's about 1.35 million people, um, and we're looking at about 750,000 households across the state. Great. So, so I mean, it just makes it easier for people to understand why it's only $100 per household, even even though you're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, right? It's because there's 1.35 million people who qualify for this benefit, right? And that's, and there's a correct. there's another section of people that are still food insecure that don't qualify, and that's part of what we're going to be grappling with as well. But this is hugely helpful to just kind of frame what is the scope of the of the problem in terms of the number of people, and then what did those people experience, and now what? Absolutely, and you know some of the research that has has come out about you know kind of like pandemic response, and this isn't necessarily Michigan specific, but Michigan um, had a, a number of programs that they implemented as a result of the pandemic um, to take advantage of for you know the benefits of the residents. You know, as those things as research has come out, you know we have seen the impacts on like a uh, reduction of um, food insecurity as a result of things like emergency allotments and, you know, the, the programs that were run through community-based organizations and food assist, uh, food banks, et cetera. So now as we see ourselves kind of return more to normal, we need to pay attention to, okay, what does normal look like for yeah. Michiganders? With that, um, and, and I would love to, to hear, you know, you, you both of you talk about the data that you rely on. We have a, a couple of numbers we rely on, and, and I want to talk about one that's maybe a little bit um, unique and is something that, that I appreciate knowing about um, and learning from. And, uh, and this number is surveys that's done through an organization called Propel. And Propel probably doesn't mean a lot to um, the, the listening community. But what they are is they're a nonprofit who runs a, a, a smartphone application that happens to be used by about a third of the food assistance households in Michigan. And this isn't government affiliated at all. I mean, literally, these households use this app because they want it. Um, they go to the app store and download it. And uh, in, in the course of using this app, which essentially it tells them like what their balance is, how to find the best coupons, where you know farmers markets and th- things of that nature that our, our food uh, assistance population we know really values, um, they uh, will do periodic surveys of individuals using um, their application. Um, again, not affiliated with us, but they're nice enough that they will um, send us over some of the data that, that we have expressed that we care about um, to help inform us. And so one of those data points that they will look at is monthly. They will ask um, Michiganders that are using their app, have you had to skip a meal? Um, and now this is self-reported, right? You know, there's nobody that's you know, in their household looking at their coverage or looking at their cooking habits, et cetera. But from a self-reported standpoint, um, back in August of last year, about one in four 
individuals were saying, well, it was 27% were saying, yeah, that, that they had to skip a meal during the month um, because of, you know, access to food. Um, that number went up to 43% wow. here in August of this year. So, you know, from, from my chair, you know, Grant, there's lots of data out there, but this one kind of feels to me, you know, it's, it's people responding to uh, an application that they trust, that they choose to use voluntarily. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, a sample frame, if you will, that is pretty consistent month to month. So that 16% increase, Jerry, to me, that that was you know helping to illustrate really maybe the significance of food insecurity um, in Michigan uh, year to year. That that is uh, that is really remarkable, and I think our so sixteen percent increase is actually slightly less than the increase in the number of people that we're seeing at the pantries. We're and I mean for for gleaners alone and maybe doctor you have a a better number for the whole state, but we've been looking at since last February, which was, you know, that key moment when those benefits stopped, increases more like twenty two, twenty three percent. I I think that's more uh, in line statewide. Twenty two, twenty two, twenty three uh percent when we average out what's seeing southeast michigan is seeing a bit more because there's more people is one yeah. one one way to peel the layer off this onion but um overall it's it's over 20 percent that we we're seeing and when you think about what lou what you guys are seeing and what we're seeing it's it's pretty uh we don't like this trend <laughs> you know mm-hmm. t- to say the least So um, we're going to continue to define the problem here and then, but but stay with us because throughout the show, we're also going to talk about uh, how do we solve the problem. We're not just problem spotters here, we're problem solvers. And uh, we're going to be back with Lou Rubel, the Chief Deputy Director for Opportunity at the Department of Health and Human Services, Jerry Brisson, and myself, Dr. Phil Knight. All three of us are back with you in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with our guest, uh, Lou Rubel. Uh, Lou, um, how, 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 how are you in the face of all this? I mean, this, this work can be very, very overwhelming, and you can feel like, uh, well, Jerry says a lot here on the show, uh, the less you know about a problem, the easier it is to solve. And, you know, unfortunately for you, you know a lot, not less, you know more. And sometimes it can be overwhelming. You know, um, that's in, in indeed the truth, right? I think, you know, any anybody who's a listener to this program would, would certainly uh, feel that they want to take action on this issue. It's so important. You know, we know whether uh, you care about kids you know the impact that hunger has on children. Whether you care about the elderly, you know the impact that hunger has on adults who you know we want to be able to age with dignity. So across the age spectrum, um, regardless of where you are in the state, this is absolutely a critical issue that uh, we all um, have motivation to solve together. Um, with that, Phil, I think that we you know we have some things in the works that are going to help with it. Um, but the reality is, is you know there's no single solution to a problem. Um, this sophisticated, um, but we all benefit when we can work together in order to do so. Well, we um, do we do work together, and we appreciate you and your leadership very, very much. And you and I 
served together as, on the governor's uh, food security council, and uh, thank 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 God that we, in my mind, we 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 took our gifts and we blended those together, and uh, you know, you, part of your gift as a leader is you know to actually be very good at herding the cats when their tails are on fire in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> and and that's that's that was the work that you did and uh I think Michigan is better because of it. And that goes along with all the work that you do every day. So well, I think so. You're you're welcome. It, it's heartfelt and it's true it's easy, easy to say because it's true. But don't let me interrupt the conversation you and Jerry are having about defining the problem because that's the first step uh, that leaders take. They they define what the problem is, and and one of the things that we think is important as we as we talk about more people coming for help, um, one of the things we want to avoid is perpetuating stereotypes. Right. So it's it's common for people to have an idea in their mind about who's hungry. And, and then when you say there's more people coming, they just take that and multiply it by whatever the number is that you, that you see more people. It's, it's not that people, uh, as an initial response to this, go, oh, I probably got to think differently about, about who really is coming for food help, right? Instead, they go, oh, well, I saw that homeless guy at the Viaduct, and it's probably more of them. So, so one of the things I want to do when we talk about the need going up, I think it's also really important to talk about who are we talking about, right? It, it really isn't one, uh, one homogenous group of people that, that are the need, right? And, and when, we, when we look at the types of people who get, for example, who, are, who get our low wages but who are working every day and getting their kids to school and all those kinds of things, it's, it's people that look like National Guardsmen. And police officers and firefighters and teachers, retirees, right? It's, it's, it's people who are at the band banquet at school who come to volunteer and they might even bring something for the potluck. But on the way home where you're going home to do whatever you're going to do, they're making a stop at the pantry first because they can't feed their family. It's it's and it's so many stories. And I think that's one of the points you were making, Lou, earlier when you were saying it's going to be a multifaceted solution because the stories reflect a very broad and diverse group of people who need some help. And the other thing that that we find is when we offer unfettered access to food, in other words, you don't need an appointment, you can just show up. Our data says the average household comes twice a month for three or four months. So even though you hear about things like multi-generational poverty, and I'm not saying that isn't an issue and something that we have to talk about, when you look at people's behavior around benefits and, and taking benefits that they need in order to, to make ends meet and to, to survive and thrive maybe even in their life, the stories are a lot more complicated than just people taking something and not doing anything about it. So, so I just want to put that out there because I think as we talk about increased need, it's, not, it's, it, it, it's a complicated increase of different people who could make ends meet before who can't make ends meet now. 
Yeah, that's a, a, a great point, Jerry. You know, and, and one of the things uh, that I think underscores what you had just offered is, you know, in professional circles um, that I run in, obviously this, this topic will come up, you know, probably on more occasions than, than most people because of, you know, what, what I do for a day job. And it's amazing to hear um, the stories about people who had to rely on, you know, the, the food assistance program, for instance, for a short period of time, you know, when they were younger or when they were a child in a household, et cetera. So your point's a good one. Um, this uh, hunger can affect uh, people from all walks of life. It can affect people from, you know, all parts of the state um, to the point, honestly, Jerry, you know, where it's, it makes it harder to solve, right? If it was yeah. a certain person um, in a certain area, we could, you know, flood that area with resources and take care of the problem, but it's so widespread and complicated. You know, um, we know that, you know, things like, uh, you know, housing costs plays into food insecurity. We know that medical costs and access to medical care, you know, can, can be a disruptor and economic shock to families. We know that even, you know, what families Families pay for um, have to pay for daycare and access to daycare benefits and things like that plays into this. Um, so you're absolutely right. When we look at kind of the face of um, of hunger, when we look at the recipients of food assistance, it's not you know one one individual that you know we can put in any type of box. Um, you know we know there's some things that uh, tend to lead to higher rates of food insecurity. Um, you know we know that you know frankly families with children. Um, often are, are more at risk of food insecurity, especially if they are um, headed by um, a, a single parent. And if that single parent mm-hmm. is female, rates go up. Um, we know that Hispanic and black families uh, have a higher rate of food insecurity. And then if uh, there is a disabled adult uh, member of the household, that is one of the key predictors of food insecurity as well. You take all of those things that I just read off, and truthfully, that could be uh, pretty much anybody at any within any part of the state of Michigan. Um, it is incredibly widespread and a diverse problem um, that we need to figure out how best to uh, to make progress towards. And I think our one of the things that's changed in in the way we see uh, our responsibility in this, and this I'm talking about food banks in particular here, but I think I could probably include, uh, you know, all of us who are working on basic needs work in the various capacities we have. And in the past, you know, need would come, you'd meet the need, and then you'd be moving on to the next thing, right? <clears throat> and I think now we're we're just a lot more sophisticated about saying, okay, we still have a responsibility to see what's happening and to respond to that, right? That we are a first responder for people who have basic needs uh, issues, right? And we will always be that. It's a really important role that we play. But now we do a lot better job of saying, okay, how much of this is permanent? How much of it is transient? How much of it is, is you know... Um, here with us that that we can actually build systems around to solve and how much do we not know yet so we can't we don't want to spend too much time building systems about stuff we don't know enough about right so this community engagement work and talking to people and understanding better what people actually want and need and how do we meet them where they are i mean it's just so the tools we have to do this work are so much better but that's inspires us to believe are part of the reason why we believe that this is a solvable problem. It doesn't mean we have all the answers because we don't. But working together with your data and our data and the smart people that we all work with makes us have more confidence that we can solve this. But it's work. It's it's not simple. It's not. It is a lot of work. And to add to your both of you and your data points, 
uh, our friends in Ohio, just to the south of us, have reached out to their network. And I'm going to share this and we'll take a quick break. 68% of the people coming to the food bank network had to choose between food, transportation, and gas. 66 reported they had to choose between food and utilities. Which one are they going to play? We call these trade-offs. 55% had to choose between food or medicine and health care. So this is exactly what we're talking about. The trade-offs, the kind of downward pressure and stress that is created simply when you have more month than you do money. And, you know, these, these are economic questions. These are wage questions. These are uh, what, how much it costs to live questions. And we're not the most expensive state in America in regard to health, uh, to child care. We're, but we are the fifth most expensive state in America in regard to child care. So these are all downward pressures that the families feel and have to make these decisions in regard to trade-offs. He's Lou Rubel. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. And the three of us are going to be back. Don't you go anywhere either. Come back and be with us. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the studio, and Lou Rubel, the Chief Deputy Director for Opportunity, which is what we want to talk about, Lou, at the Department of Health and Human Services. So we, we, you guys have done a pretty good job of defining the problem, and, and it's, it's bigger now, you know, and, and, and in essence, it's bigger now than even when it was in the pandemic. And there are lots of downward economic pressures that help create this. So what are we going to do about it? What's happening on the state side? What's happening on the, 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 the charitable food system side, Jerry? Let's see what, what, we are, what are we doing besides pooling our resources? We're also pooling our thoughts uh, as, as, as subject matter experts, as thought leaders in this work. What do you two say? What are we doing to, to help relieve this pressure that the families in Michigan are seeing and experiencing? Sure. Well, I, uh, it, I appreciate that question because, you know, that's at the heart of, of progress. So, you know, there's when, when we look at the, the state uh, response, um, I think that the food assistance program obviously is, is front and center. You know, it is uh, such a massive program. It has uh, the ability to really provide meaningful benefits uh, to combat food insecurity. A couple of things that we're doing with that program um, is, you know, really working to make sure that it works for residents and through an access uh, standpoint. And, and I, I believe you all are, are very familiar with the work that started, oh, maybe five, six years ago, where we really looked at that process by, you know, when people apply, you know, we, we didn't spend enough time listening to the challenges that even the application process held for residents. And so when we uh, were able to do that, and when we did that and did it well with the help of a, a number of community organizations, we realized that there was things that, that were just administrative barriers that didn't need to be there. And ultimately, um, families who are struggling for that period of time, if we can connect them to these supports, they can get a foundation, they can get a footing, they can get them, themselves then moving on a trajectory where we know that, that they're not going to need assistance um, long term. It's a matter of stabilizing and then being able to move in a positive uh, direction as they obtain economic mobility. So kind of along the lines of like that administrative, uh, trying to ease the administrative burden of uh, the application process, 
lots of really good work done um, already. You know, the term in, in this space is called human-centered design. You know, we want to make sure that when we're communicating with people, they actually understand what the government's trying to say, right? And, and as simple as that is, it's pretty complicated sometimes for us um, to not speak, you know, in jargon, et cetera. So things of that nature have been helpful. We also um, really appreciate some of the changes that have um, come about at um, the state and federal level. You know, one of them I think that is uh, really encouraging is uh, at the state level, um, the legislature and the governor um, have passed uh, uh, legislation that removes the asset test uh, for families. Um, the reality was is, you know, there wasn't too many people applying for food assistance benefits who were over asset, but what it was doing was really slowing down the process and, and adding inefficiency into the process and frankly, probably adding frustration in the process for families that we're applying. Um, so we're excited about that change that's going to be coming up in the uh, first quarter of next calendar year. We also have really leaned in to improve how the technology can work for residents. There were some hiccups along the way sometimes when people were trying to apply. We believe we were able to smooth out uh, most of those now. We know that uh, certain populations, um, Phil, were really struggling mm -hmm. with uh, being able to apply for food benefits. So we've been able to make some progress there. You know, an example is uh, visually impaired um, residents. Um, you know, our, our, our paperwork has lots of small words, and it's something that um, to many of us we don't think twice about. But if you have an uh, uh, inability to read small words and things of that nature, we knew that we had to do something different. So we've got the ability now when we have some large font applications. Again, you know, not, not a magic bullet, but for a number of residents, we know that it will be easier. Also, really trying to look at um, reducing churn. You know, we, we, people are eligible for the program. We want to make sure that they can stay connected to it for the period of time that they need it. And so there's uh, some federal waivers that can help us on this front. One of them is uh, the ability to, it's called simplified reporting, which doesn't necessarily mean anything to anybody outside of, you know, those of us who work with this policy. But it really allows us to um, reduce kind of the administrative reporting burden on families and puts in kind of these harder checkpoints um, like six months out in a case um, where we have to take kind of a, a look at eligibility. But in between those checkpoints, we don't expect there to be so much um, required dialogue back and forth between us and the resident, again, to kind of help uh, reduce that administrative burden. The other thing at the federal level that will hopefully help this out is, you know, we've got a summer EBT program. Um, coming uh, this next year and then um, into the future, which we think will be incredibly helpful for families with school-aged children. Um, this program, a, a version of this program came about during the pandemic, and there were some questions as to whether or not it was going to continue. Um, so Michigan's leaned in. We're going to make sure we're prepared to um, issue those benefits and run that program efficiently come the summer. And then lastly, I think the other thing is, is you know, we've, we've really taken a deep look at some of our uh, populations that are more at risk. And an example of this is uh, youth who are young adults who are formerly in foster care. Mm -hmm. We know that they're absolutely at risk of food insecurity. And so we really um, worked uh, with the youth, with these young adults, trying to say, hey, what's some of the challenges that you all have um, with being food secure? And how can, how can our food assistance program maybe better meet your needs? That, that collaboration has really, I think, yielded um, an approach to connecting with former foster youth that um, is certainly new to us and very well maybe new to, um, you know, kind of nationally maybe uh, certainly viewed as a best practice where we're looking at how do we help get a process together where uh, those uh, young adults feel comfortable 
uh, engaging with uh, the system again, uh, where we can use data to make sure we're reaching out to them, and then where we can really have on our side uh, staff that are really trained and very sensitive to um, what the unique challenges may be of a former foster youth who is now a young adult and in, in need of some assistance. So. Um, you know, we're, we're trying uh, a number of things here, um, always looking for what else can be done. Um, and, you know, across, you know, the, the team of, you know, 3,500 staff that do this work day in and day out, really trying to always look at how can we better meet the needs of those who can benefit from this program. And with that, certainly appreciate both of your insight along the way um, as your uh, insight and your team's insight has helped us um you know, remarkably to, uh, with each of these approaches. So I love the concrete examples of how to improve access. It's great. Now give me a paragraph, if you can, besides being helpful to the people who are getting the services now that struggled to get it before, why does this matter to the whole community? Why does it matter to everyone that yeah. this access happens? Yeah, I, well, first of all, that's a great question. And, and I'm going to go back to what Phil had said previously. You know, if I'm a community member, if I'm a teacher in a school, um, the, the children in my classroom, if they're well fed, they're going to be well read. Um, if I'm a landlord, if uh, an individual is trying to make a decision between buying groceries at the store and paying rent, um, if the food assistance program, if they're eligible for it, hopefully then that it makes the rent a little bit easier to pay because, you know, a portion of their food assistance uh, or their, their grocery bill can be covered by food assistance. Um, I think, you know, on and on, we can see the benefits of this program helping support, you know, through that basic needs where individuals um, who are eligible for it, receiving it, can therefore then use maybe their other resources to apply towards utility bills. Um, transportation to get back and forth to work, um, you know, and I, I think that that's a big one, right? You know, a lot of times we know right now that employers are, are wanting to make sure that they can um, keep the doors open, have enough staff on site. Um, the reality is, is, is people need to be able to have resources to get back and forth to work, and they need to have uh, food in their in their belly to be able to to be, a, you know, a, a good employee as well. So, um, up and down the line across society, I think that we all benefit when we have uh, access to a program such as this and, and utilize that program um, to the extent that we're able to in order to meet uh, nutritional needs of individuals and families. So, Lou, when, when people hear all the things that the Department of Health and Human Services, the administration is doing to come alongside the Michigan families that are struggling with food insecurity and housing and all the things that go along with this solving this problem. One of the things I've always appreciated about you is that when you talk about these powerful programs that are happening, you never clap your hands at the end of your, your talk and go, you know, mission accomplished. You know, you don't pull a George W. Bush mistake out on the aircraft carrier there, you know, mission accomplished there. So it's, it's, it, it's more work to do. As much as we're doing, it's still more work to do. And I, I, I have always appreciated your candidness about that, and uh, appreciate you being on the show today. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna close this segment, but we're gonna close this segment with you having the last word. Um, so, Phil, thanks for that. And, and, you know, I think you're right. There is much more to do. Um, wanted to also showcase just a bright spot, you know, in September when our uh, school-age kids returned to school in Michigan this year, you know, they were uh, greeted with uh, free breakfast and lunch 
across the state if they um, so choose to, um, you know, to, to use it or, or access it. Um, I think that that's a, a really kind of great example, too, of, you know, uh, through the um, Food Security Council and a number of community organizations saying, hey, you know what, here's a great solution. Can we do this? The legislature, the governor um, work together cooperatively. We have that now available to our Michigan students. Um, and I think through um, just, you know, common sense solutions such as those, we're going to continue to make progress here. So um, kind of last word is I definitely think that uh, food insecurity can be solved. I definitely think regardless of what chair a listener is sitting in, there is either action that they can take to help make sure that people who are food insecure can connect with these programs, or there's uh, absolutely opportunities for individuals in every community to help become part of the solution if uh, they so choose to engage. He's Lou Rubel. He is the Chief Deputy Director for Opportunity at the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. He's been our guest. He is our colleague, and he's my friend. He's your friend, too, Jerry. I'm going to count it. <laughs> and, Lou, thanks for being with us. And, uh, you know, not 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 too much distance between now and your next visit here on Food First Michigan. We appreciate you, brother. Thank you both. appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Jerry and I are back in just a moment. Jerry, final thought. Privilege to work with Lou and all the people like him. He does have a great team, and we love him. Time for a little food for thought. It's been said, less is more. And I would say that isn't always true. When a person only has less and never more, it is a miserable way to live. Most of us listening get to choose what we eat every day, where we live, and what we drive. And that is good. The ability to choose to not live under the tyranny of the moment and the fear of always being in need is what everyone wants. Food security and thereby the priority of food first is a powerful concept that rings true and perhaps it is even more true today than previously imagined. Food first fuels the person and starves the scavenger we call trade-offs. So today and tomorrow, we will continue to work for a hunger-free Michigan by putting food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.